Take your Bibles and turn to Romans 8. I don't know what this says about me, but apparently my mic wasn't on and I didn't notice it, which is uh, a constant theme with me. I wake up in the morning and my kids tell me to turn it down. But, um, you know, I told someone that I had known uh, to some degree that the Lord um, had called me to be a pastor, and this is not definitive, but uh, all of a sudden I could speak louder than everybody else in the room. I didn't know it about me growing up. I was actually, you should have seen little Dennis, I was soft-spoken, quiet. Uh, I would be in the corner, didn't want anyone to see me, and now I can't help but people to see me because I'm, I'm in front. But praise God. Um, one of my favorite texts in the Bible is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where Paul talks about God choosing the weak. And um, it's something that I feel regularly. You know, we just sung a song about the power of the cross, and um, I stopped singing at the end because it dawned on me that um, there are times when I don't feel sufficient enough to communicate that power. I'm so thankful to God that even um, in our own weakness, when we struggle to communicate that message, he works through us. Praise God for his goodness and his grace and his mercy. And hopefully that's the case today. Romans chapter 8. I had a professor that called this the greatest chapter in the Bible. I don't know if that'll go that far, but I'll say this. It's a chapter in the Bible you need to know. In fact, what I would challenge you to do is memorize this chapter of the Bible. If you're not in the habit of memorizing scripture, this will be an excellent scripture to memorize. I'll be preaching through this for the next two months, and I want to challenge you to try and memorize it in two months. The way they taught us to memorize scripture in seminary was you read it as a whole, and then you kept reading it until you memorized it. Now, you might have a different way of doing that, and I certainly don't want to burden your conscience. I know some of you struggle with memory work, but why don't you pray and ask the Holy Spirit to help you? You know, that's what he does. He helps you, helps you overcome any weakness you might have with your learning or challenges you might have with reading. And perhaps even if you are so challenged you cannot read, then you can listen to it over and over again. But try to memorize this book of the Bible. Next two months, and we'll sing it, we'll say it all together. Now I have a bit of a head start, but that's okay. Um, I, I don't have it entirely memorized. I've lost some of it, but I'm gonna get back to it. And so I'm not just challenging you to memorize it, I am challenging myself, and we'll stand up here and try to see if we can do it together. So um, I hope uh, you all don't feel any condemnation by that. And some of you might get nervous about that, but don't worry, I won't um, point you out or anything like that. Let's read this passage, and I would like for us to read it together in an attempt to try and memorize it together. Let's read now from God's holy word. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. 
For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it is not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with groaner longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, 
the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what's in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for Saul, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And all God's people say, Amen. Amen. What a powerful chapter. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord shall endure forever. And this is the word that will be taught unto you. Amen and amen. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, indeed, this is your word, and these are your people. Unite the two now. Bless us as we dive into this glorious chapter in your providence. You led the Apostle Paul to write. May the truths that are found in it transform our hearts and our minds so that we reflect more of the image of Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. If you don't mind turning down my mic some, I'd appreciate that. I'm in the middle of a book entitled, How Jesus Christ Changed the World. 
And it's an interesting book, but I think it's mistitled. Perhaps the author should have said how the teachings of Jesus Christ transformed his followers that then transformed the world. Because that's what Christianity is. Beloved, you and I are here today because of a set of teachings that transformed the world 2,000 years ago. Yes, Jesus Christ did transform the world in its proper understanding, but it was ordinary people. I shouldn't actually call them ordinary, extraordinary people who took the message of what Christ said and believed it, lived it out, and through their example, through their passionate teaching, endured persecution and suffering, that they went and started orphanages, hospitals, uh, uh, schools, and they did all sorts of things because they believed in the message of Jesus Christ. And the question is, what were those beliefs? Well, I've studied the Bible. Um, I haven't studied the Bible as in-depth as others in this room, but it's come to my understanding that Romans 8 has about seven or eight principal teachings that we see throughout the Bible that were used by God's people to transform the world. And what I want to do over the next seven to eight weeks is I want us to look at these teachings. And I want us to see how powerful they are. Because as you read through this passage, you've already noticed the great depth and wonder of what Scripture has to say here. And the teachings in this chapter not only transformed you and I, but have transformed people throughout the ages. You know, we live in a culture now in which we see the teachings of Christianity not having the influence that it used to. And many of us bemoan that. What is happening to our faith? But I want to encourage you by saying this, what Paul said in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, certainly holds true. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. Do you believe that, Christian? That's the thesis of the book of Romans. If you believe that, then we shouldn't be afraid of what's happening in our culture. There is no power that can overthrow the power of the gospel. There's no power that can thwart the advancement of the gospel. There's no government, no teaching, no ideology that we as Christians should be afraid of because we have the truth of God's word. Now, I don't say that pridefully. I don't say that triumphantly, but I say that as a glorious fact of scripture. I'm not overly worried about what happens in our world simply because I know how the story ends. Jesus wins. And everything in between is a march of the message of the gospel that you and I are called to hold on to and believe and take into the world. And that's what we're going to be talking about over the next seven weeks. And I want to begin with the very first teaching 
that the gospel has that's central to the message of the gospel. And it's found in verse number one of Romans 8. We've talked about it already. There is no condemnation. I want you to underline that in your Bibles. And I want to say four things about those words. No condemnation. In fact, to broaden it out, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. I want you to underline that. No condemnation. Now, what does that mean? No condemnation is a legal term, and it means to be judged and found guilty, to be punished. And that's something that all of us have experienced. I know I experienced it a lot as a young man growing up. I was mischievous, and therefore, as a result of my mischievousness, I got judged and punished quite a bit. And you, all of you inside here have experienced that. We know what condemnation feels like. But I want to say four things that this passage tells us, both about God and about our faith. The first is this. It is a glorious statement. It is a glorious statement. And in particular, it's a glorious statement about God, that God is not a vicious tyrant, but God is a gracious father who loves to forgive his children and offers to us no condemnation. Recently, I heard a story by a young lady by the name of Yon Mi Park. And Yon Mi Park told about her story growing up in North Korea. And in her story, she talked about the power that Kim Jong-un wielded in North Korea. And she mentioned that he used that power to condemn the people in North Korea. If you didn't clap hard enough for him, you would be condemned to concentration camps and even killed. If you didn't laugh and show exuberance hard enough, you would be punished. If you didn't show him reverence enough, you would be punished. Every slight and minor infraction you committed in Kim Jong-un's presence was met by the most extreme and vicious condemnation. And she talked about what it meant to live in such a place that it not only impacted you mentally, but it impacted you physically to where you always walked in a posture of bowing because you did not want to offend Kim Jong-un. Well, beloved, I'm here to tell you today that we serve no such king. That the king of kings and the lord of lords do not have a reign of terror or a reign of condemnation. But the Bible says that we live under no condemnation. As James Montgomery Boyce says in his commentary, we live underneath the reign of grace. That our God holds immense power, and instead of using that power to beat us down, he uses that power to lift the condemnation on our souls. 
Notice this statement by John in John chapter 3, 17. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Translation, not condemned. That's what kind of glorious savior we worship. One of the most vivid scenes in all of scripture is the woman caught in adultery. Many of you remember that. Actually, it should be named the woman and the man caught in adultery, but unfortunately, it's not named that. This woman is taken. She's brought before Jesus. Chances are she was virtually unclothed. She was defenseless by the law. She was guilty. She was ashamed. She was being exploited. And they all looked at Jesus and said, Jesus, aren't you going to judge her? She deserves to be judged. She's guilty. And of course, Jesus looked at them and said, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. And each and every one of them went away. But the story doesn't end there. He looks at the woman and he says these glorious words. Where are those that were judging you? Where are those who were condemning you? And she said, they are no longer here. And he says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. That's power wielded for good. That's power to lift the condemnation that is on us because of the fall. In fact, that's all of what Romans chapter 1 through 7 was talking about. Notice in the passage, it says, therefore, that therefore is going back to what all Paul said, that all of us are under condemnation. Translation, all of us are like the woman caught in adultery. We all deserve the punishment that comes with living in a world of sin. And yet God, by his gracious, majestic power, saves us and prevents us from no condemnation. So that's the first thing. It tells us of a glorious God who does not condemn us. But notice the second thing. It's an absolute statement. Uh, look again at the word no. There is no condemnation. That's an absolute statement. What do I mean that it's an absolute statement? Donald G. Barnhouse said that the word no here is a unique word, and he actually spent time counting how many times the word no in this form is used throughout the New Testament. He said it's 51 times. Can you imagine that? A scholar sitting down and counting everyone. But he says that the five times, it's used five times by someone other than Jesus. So Jesus used it 46 times. And in the five times it's used by someone other than Jesus, each and every time it's used, that person never kept their word. Most notably, Peter used it when he looked at Jesus and said, Jesus, I will never deny you. He was trying to communicate his love for Jesus. And Donald Barnhouse said the problem with Peter wasn't that Peter wasn't sincere. He desperately wanted to not deny Jesus. The problem with Peter is that he couldn't deliver. He couldn't deliver on that promise. And so then Donald Barnhouse said that what is glorious about this passage is when our Lord says no condemnation, he doesn't desire that for you purely or merely. 
He says the power behind these verses is that he, de he desires that for you, but he also can secure it. He also can secure it. That's why in Romans chapter 8, go down to verse number 33. He can boldly say, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? This is a boast. Who can do it? That's how strong the negation is. Who can bring any charge against God's elect? It is God is justified. Who is it to condemn? In a sense, he's saying, look, look, sinner, if God has forgiven you of your sins, who dare condemns you? No one can. No one can. Because there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Notice with me also, this is an eternal statement. Notice the word now. Circle that. That's an eternal statement. It means that now there is no condemnation. It's not a future. It's now. It's represented in the here and now. I met a young man several months ago who told me that he was diagnosed with religious OCD. I don't know if you all have ever heard that term. I had to look it up to be quite honest. And religious OCD are people who constantly do religious things to be right with God. So these are people that pray upwards to 50 to 70 times a day. These are people that read their Bible constantly. These are people who continuously performed religious acts because they always think that they're not saved. Or they always think that they're falling out of favor with God. They're always trying to work for their salvation. And Paul says to us, you don't have to do that. There is right now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That is your inheritance by virtue of your union with Christ. If you're in here today, and there's usually one or two, you struggle with your eternal security. And you always think that the moment you sin, you fall out of favor with God. That's not what the scripture teaches. Right now, beloved. There is no condemnation. But notice also, this is an exclusive statement. Paul says, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Underline that statement because the text clearly tells us that the condemnation, the no condemnation status that exists is an exclusive statement that belongs solely to God's people. There are two groups of people, two classes of people being mentioned in this text. Those who are in Christ Jesus and those who are outside of Christ Jesus. Now, why is this important? Here's why. One of the principal doctrines in our society today is the doctrine of inclusion. The doctrine of inclusion. In our society today, you do not exclude anyone based on any criteria. In other words, it doesn't matter who you love, how you love, regardless of your lifestyle. It doesn't matter what you believe about Christ. It doesn't matter what you do. You can never be condemned. This is also known as universalism. Now, you young people particularly listen because this is the primary doctrine in our day. 
If you have not faced this, you will. In other words, this is why we have Christians who think they can live however they want and do whatever they want and still be called a Christian. But unfortunately, Paul is not a universalist. And Paul does, by the way, and I should say this, Paul actually does preach a gospel of inclusion. But it's the gospel of inclusion without distinction, not without exception. And I have to explain this because this is important. Paul in Galatians chapter 3 verse 28 says this, there is, therefore, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Notice the distinction. Yes, on the one hand he's saying all are included in Christ's redemptive work. There is no Jew or Greek neither slave nor free, male and female, all are in Christ, but all are in Christ without distinction. But notice how he ends. They are all one, but it's in Christ. So there is an exception. The exception is, are you in Christ? Now, what does that phraseology mean? Well, it simply means this. To be in Christ... It's found in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. In other words, brothers and sisters, to be in Christ means that we believe in Jesus Christ as the exclusive way of salvation, that we do what's pleasing unto him, that our lives conform to what he wants us to do. That's what it means to be fully and completely in Christ Jesus. That's the teaching of Scripture. Now notice with me quickly. Notice with me quickly what else Paul says. Paul says, yes, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Then he gives two reasons for it. So first of all, notice in verse number two and three, the word for. Those words indicate the reason why there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And then follow the verbs. He says, for, in verse number two, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Notice the word set us free. In other words, the reason why there's no condemnation is because we've been set free from the law of sin and death. It is by the law, the work of the spirit of life, that we are set free from the law of sin and death. Here's what Paul is saying in essence. The law has the idea of the power, the power that's exerted. And Paul is saying here that the law of sin and death or the power of sin and death presses on the believer to the point where it's crushing to the believer. But Paul says because of the great work of Jesus Christ, there's another law that comes in to support us and prevents us from being crushed by the weight of sin and death. Most of us in this room have probably heard about the tragic story of the Ocean Gate crew, in which five people went down in a submarine uh, to take a look at the Titanic. On a side note, I wish people would stop being so interested in the Titanic. I mean, how many more people have to die looking for the Titanic? These men went down into the Titanic, and 
You all know the story. The reports came out that there was a massive implosion and killed all on board. And my heart goes out to the victims and to their family. As the reports came out, they said that the hull of the ship was weak and compromised. And the further they went down into the ocean, the crushing weight of being below the sea cracked the skull, the hull of the ship, and killed them instantly. As I read the story, I couldn't help but seeing the spiritual reality of that text. At least the spiritual reality of what happened, and it's this. If you are in anything that is not Christ Jesus, you are condemned. Eventually, the hole will crack, and your life will implode. It's bound to. Listen, I don't know what you are trusting in. In our culture, we typically trust in money. We typically trust in a good education. We typically trust in security. We typically trust in our good looks or our niceness or our ability to be good enough. You name it. But whatever you're trusting in, if it's not in Christ Jesus, will suffer an implosion. That's what the scriptures principally teach. But it doesn't have to. It doesn't have to. That's the reality of scripture. That's what Paul is saying here. When you're in Christ, there's a power at work in your life that regardless of what happens in your life, you are able to be supported by the work of the Spirit. This has practical implications, and I'll give you just a few. First of all, there's no condemnation in your failures. I don't know about you, but I, I fail a lot. I fail a lot. And man, there are times in my life where I've failed so miserably, so miserably, that if it were not for Christ Jesus, there's a real chance I would have taken my own life. And maybe there's some of you inside here like that today. You are aware of how much you fail. I was listening to a report about those in the medical field, that there's a high number of them that are unbelievers. And unfortunately, if they accidentally kill a patient, the chances of them killing themselves goes up exponentially. We need to be praying for our brothers and sisters in the medical field. There's several of them in here today. When you fail, what are you trusting in? The Bible says that there's also no condemnation in your parenting. There's some of you that are going to be new parents soon. You need to hear this. Some of you are parents now. You're aware of the failures of being a parent. There are many nights I go to bed and I can't even sleep because I've disciplined my children errantly. I haven't listened to them. I haven't spent time with them. I haven't instructed them enough. And sleep is taken away from me because I'm so aware of my failure as a parent. And in those moments, In those moments, I go back to Romans 8. No condemnation. God loves them far more than I do. And he protects them even from 
a foolish father. Can I say quickly that there's no condemnation in your marriage? There's some of you newly married. I love seeing newly married people. They're so happy. Some of them inside here today. That's why I love doing weddings. I see newly married people, man, or people that are dating. So cute. <laughs> and you know, I try not to tell them that you'll fail one another at some point. That just, you know, that just kind of sucks all the air out of the room. But if you don't know, it will happen. It will. And when it does, it crushes your soul. And for those of us that have been married for a long time, we know the pain of hurting and disappointing our spouse. And yet we can turn to this passage and be reminded that there's no condemnation in a Christian marriage. There's no condemnation in our sin. This one is the most scandalous. Because if you think about it, you can read this to mean that we could sin with impunity because there's no condemnation in our sin. Think about that. You know, recently I was reading 1 Kings chapter 21 with my kids. We were doing family worship. And I'm reading the story of Ahab. And those of you that don't know, Ahab was one of the most wicked kings in all of Israel. And it said that um, Ahab took Naboth's field by lying against Naboth and killing him. And, and Elijah comes and, and pronounces judgment on him. And in that moment, the Bible says that Ahab repented and humbled himself before the Lord. And the Lord forgave him. And then sent him to, um, sent, sent Elijah back to him to say, Elijah, go and tell him that I have forgiven him. Forgiven Ahab? I'm almost like, God, do you read the Bible? <laughs> you know, this man's a wicked, debased man. If anyone needs condemnation, it's Ahab. But the scandal of grace is that even a wicked king like Ahab can receive the precious promises of God towards his people. And he went to him and he said, no condemnation. And there are some of us in here today, we sin over and over and over and over and over and over again. And every time we turn to Romans chapter 8, verse 1, we read these blessed words, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, even the Christian who sins. But this great love that God shows us doesn't lead us to more sin. If anything, the great love should cause us to not want to sin. I'll give you one more. There's no condemnation in suffering. You know, I don't know about you, but there are times when I suffer and immediately I think, God, what have I done? I'll never forget when Theresa and I um, had two miscarriages back to back. I sat down with a piece of paper and I wrote down every single thing that I thought I did wrong. Because in my mind, 
why would God allow that to happen if I didn't sin? But then I was reminded of Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to them who in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? What does that mean? It means this, that God, if you are a believer, God never disciplines you punitively. He cannot. Because your sin has been dealt with in Christ. But he disciplines you as a loving father. As a loving father. Never as a tyrant. Notice the last one in verse number three. And here you have to really follow the verb. What is the second reason for our no condemnation? It says, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. How? By sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. Here's the controlling verb. He condemned sin in the flesh. So he set us free and he's condemned sin in the flesh. What does that mean? Actually, we just sung it. The power of the cross. In the power of the cross, it says this. Oh, to see the dawn of the darkest day, Christ on the road to Calvary, tried by sinful men, torn and beaten then, nailed to the cross of wood. Oh, to see the pain written on your face, bearing the awesome weight of sin. Mark that line, the awesome weight of sin. What are they exegeting? This passage, that God condemned sin in the flesh. Whose flesh? Christ's flesh. And so that's why if you are in Christ, what is true of Christ is true of you. You've already been condemned, but in Christ Jesus, that's why there's no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. Because just like now, God cannot condemn his own son anymore. He will never condemn you anymore. Martin Lloyd-Jones made the amazing point, he says, that most of our troubles as Christians are a failure to realize this important truth. And so let me ask you a question. Are you living as if you are not condemned? Are you overcome by your failure? When you get criticized, do you fold up? Or are you quick to condemn others? You know, one way that we can see that we don't understand, that we've not, we're no longer under condemnation, is we're quick to condemn others. Beloved, hear me today. One of the most glorious truths in all of Scripture is that you are not under condemnation. You can live in freedom. And then in your homes, on your job, in your neighborhood, wherever you go, you can spread that message. There's nothing like it in the world. Because you see, the world either excuses sin outright, or the world demands perfection. And our Lord does neither for you. He doesn't excuse your sin but he doesn't demand perfection. Instead, he says, 
there is no condemnation. And for those of you that are sitting down here and your hearts constantly condemn you, I want to read to you first from 1 John chapter 3, verse 19 through 20. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. How does God show you that he is greater than your heart? By reminding you over and over and over again, there is no condemnation. Live with that truth. Treat others with that truth and see how our gospel can transform the world. Father, we thank you. We thank you that we, we live under the reign of grace. There is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and death because what the law could not do, the law can only condemn us because it was weak in the flesh. You sent your son, Jesus Christ, in the likeness of sinful flesh to condemn the sin in us that the righteousness of the law may be fulfilled in us, your people. Thank you for that glorious truth. May we live it and may we show it towards others. In Jesus' name, amen.